We're in the third week of a series in the book of Exodus, which is the second chapter in your Bible. Let me free a bunch of you um, who feel like you don't know your Bibles that well um, to just be as stupid as you really are, um, because we all are. There's all a starting place for everybody. So if there's ever a moment when we stand up here and we go, turn to 1 Corinthians, and you're like, I have no idea where 1 Corinthians is. You can literally look up in your Bible. There's a table of contents, which is an incredible tool. And I'm not trying to make, I mean this in all seriousness. Um, There's this great passage in the book of Isaiah that says, this is the one to whom God will look. God says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and the one who trembles at my word. So as you're seeking to know the Bible more, which I cannot advise you enough of how powerful and productive your engagement with scripture is, is make sure you're engaging it. So if you use an app on your phone, slow down long enough to use the highlight thing. And even when it's hard to grab the bottom little dot and scroll it over, slow down and make sure you're like really looking at what it says. One of the powers of a hard copy Bible is you can actually use a pen or pencil, but the starting place for us all is slowing down long enough to go, I believe God's going to speak to us through the word. So I really encourage your personal engagement in that. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. So if you'd open there, we're going to be in chapters 3 and 4. And before we get there, uh, let me pray. Father, I pray um, that you would display yourself in all of your power and how personal you really are today, that you'd speak to us collectively as a church. And God, I pray that you would speak individually, God, that you would do the work of making this specific into situations and hearts in ways that I never could because I don't know. God, I confess to you that 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 I don't know, you know, and that uh, where I have no power, you have power. And so, God, I just pray that now you would display yourself powerful and personal. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. How many of you have been to London before? Engage with me. How many have been to London? See, I just had to get that second oomph and then all these other hands went up. Have you been on the London Underground, which is their subway system? When you go to their subway system, there's this real famous thing that now is on shirts and it's, you hear this voice, right? Anybody know what the voice is? Here's what it is. Mind the gap. Mind the gap. Right, so when you go to the London Underground, it's famous, and it's been there, I think, since the late 60s. Don't quote me on that, but I think that's right. And you can see the person's feet, there's a yellow line, and when the train comes, it stops, and then that voice comes on, mind the gap. And the point is, there's a gap between the train and the platform. Now, why do you think they would say, mind the gap? because they're afraid of you kind of tripping. I think actually it's a fear of like, it goes down pretty deep. And if you fell down there, bad stuff could happen, right? Because of the power of the train, they're saying mind the gap because your leg could be cut off or worse yet, and maybe more likely you could be killed. Right? So it's fun and everybody makes a joke because it's a British voice, mind the gap, mind the gap, mind the gap. And now it's like, wow, we'll make some money off of it. But it's there for a reason that you and I and every other traveler of the London Underground would actually mind the gap. 
We are going to look at two chapters today. We're not going to be able to read every single verse of this, but a theme over this is this is an encounter that Moses has with God because of God's choice to encounter Moses. So it's an encounter of God encountering Moses, but it's an encounter that will fall for the purposes of us this morning under this theme of mind the gap. Over and over again, God is saying to Moses, mind the gap. So let's get into this. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now the question is, why is Moses now a shepherd? If you remember the context of the story, the story starts in Exodus chapter 1 that the people of God, the Israelites, are in Egypt and they were flourishing and doing just fine. Then there was this narcissistic king with scarcity mentality. If they grow, they get things which mean things get taken away from me, which is not the worldview of God. It's not the way God operates. It's not the way the world really functions. But he begins to say, now we need to kill them off kill the firstborn sons. There's these very courageous women who say, no, we're not going to do that. Chapter two comes on and a courageous woman says, I'm not going to kill my firstborn son. And the birth of Moses happens. Like all of ancient literature, chapter two is the sense of there is a raising up of a man who's going to be a part of something extraordinary. The unique part of ancient literature and so much of our folklore or stories is they're built around a hero. The reality of the Bible is that the Bible is not a book of heroes. It's a book of very normal human beings whom God consistently shows he's the hero. Moses, no matter what movie you've seen or books you've read or the way you've heard the story told, is clearly not, if you read this book, the hero of the story. He's a very, very normal man who saw something, an injustice, and tried to take it into his own hands, reaped the consequences of that, ended up fleeing to Midian, meeting a man who helped him. He met his daughter, he marries his daughter, and now he's working in the industry they were working in specifically, and he's now out being a shepherd. But just before this verse, there's this statement in chapter 2, verse 24. God heard their groaning. That's the groaning of the nation of Israel, or the emerging nation of Israel, the Israelites. And God remembered his covenant, key word, with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. You'll see this throughout chapters 3 and 4. And you saw it in one and two is that God hears and God sees and God knows. Now, let me just say this because this isn't just true in Exodus. So let me just make a statement. God hears everything. And he has a special ear towards the oppressed. It says it all over the Bible. God hears, he sees, he knows. And now we begin to see that God acts. So Moses is moving. It says he's on the west side of the wilderness. He comes to Horeb, to the mountain of God. Now, I got to imagine, because he's moving, when it says he goes to the west side, he's moved a lot. And Moses has to be contemplating all that's happened to him. We don't know right now. This is really important. Moses was raised in Egypt. He knows Egypt way better than he knows the Hebraic Hebrew Israelite culture. 
we don't know how much he knows about God. He's certainly in an identity crisis. This is a man who's grown up without a father, clearly been aware of the fact that who he is by bloodline of culture is not how he was raised. So he feels culturally displaced, familially displaced, right? He doesn't feel like he fits certainly with the Israelites because he hasn't been raised with them, but he doesn't feel like he fits with the Egyptians. This is a real man who likely has dad issues, who has identity issues. He's thinking through all of this as he's out in the wilderness caring for his flock, verse 2. And then, seemingly out of nowhere, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it wasn't consumed. So there's a fire in a bush, but the branches of the bush and the thistle of it is not burning up. So he looks, his attention is drawn to this bush, his attention is drawn even more. He sees that the bush was burning, yet it wasn't consumed. And Moses says, I'll turn aside to see this great sight. Other translations say this strange sight. He sees it and he's like, that's weird. That doesn't happen very often. Why the bush is not burned. Why is the bush not burning? Makes sense, right? You see something weird? Like think about a traffic accident and you're driving on the 101 going south. There's an accident going north and yet there's a traffic jam on the south. And you're like, why do these people have to stop and look? And then as you slow down, because you have to, what do you do? You look, right? That's what people do. When there's a strange, not typical sight, they look. That's what Moses is doing. So he's now looking, but then it says, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, he went, okay, I set this bush on fire and didn't burn it for this purpose. Let me just stop and say this for a minute. I don't want to overstate this. But many times in our lives, we aren't cultivating the awareness of God to see him in the midst of all kinds of things. And one thing I just want to say to you is, the Bible says that God is speaking to us through the world, through creation, that the heavens are declaring the glory of God all the time. One of the ways in which Paul, the Apostle Paul says, the reasons that we can be condemned for not living a life with God or not understanding with God is the things that are plain to be seen, we ignore. So one simple prayer to this would be like, God, help me see your presence in the midst of everything. Just cultivate that in me. But this is explicitly weird. This isn't just everyday stuff. God's doing something. And when God sees Moses turn his face, God comes. This is something else you must understand about God. God is the initiator. Always. The God of the universe communicated to us through the Bible is a God who comes near. A God of revelation. A God who's revealing himself to people. Yes, for their good, but for his grand purposes. 
The Bible's very clear that God works all things out of, after the counsel of his will and that his purpose will stand. So God's doing something. When the Lord sees that Moses turned aside to see, God calls to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. Okay. Let's just keep reading. No, no, no. If you read the Bible, like slow down and put yourself in Moses' skin. Right? He's contemplative, he's working, at times he's not thinking about anything, he's moving along, he sees this bush, and now the bush talks to him. The bush doesn't just talk to him, right? and it's not the bush, it says there's an angel of the Lord there, but God's speaking through this moment, the passage is very clear, speaks to him. It doesn't just talk to him, it says his name twice, Moses, Moses. Now put yourself in this moment, like, that's strange. That's interesting. You're coming near. God says, when he sees him come near, Moses, Moses. What do you think he does at that moment? Do you think at that moment he's like, yes, Lord, your servant's listening. Like he's got to be like, what? Are you kidding me? Moses, Moses. And he says, so he, he moves back. I got to assume there's a moment there. And he says, here I am. I, again, I highly doubt he went, here I am, right? I mean, he's like, here I am. Then God says, mind the gap. In all seriousness, God says, don't come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. Moses, you walk in your sandals all the time. You maneuver, and you're a shepherd, and you're tending the flock. You engage with your father-in-law, Jethro, in your sandals. You engage with your wife, Zipporah, in your sandals. You engage with your friends in your sandals. You move through again with the animals in your sandals. Take your sandals off. You're not dealing with just another person. God is preparing Moses for himself. He's preparing him for God. The whole book of Exodus, this is very important, is God putting himself on display. Not just to Moses, not just to the Hebrews, but to the nations. God is displaying himself in all of his power. And here he says, Moses, mind the gap. There's a big gap between all of creation, which includes you and the creator. There's a lot of similarities between humans and humans, but there is a distinction between God and everything else he made. There can be good engineers who help us hold up buildings, but the maker and the sustainer of everything is God. Take off your sandals. So immediately Moses knows this isn't normal, this God who is this powerful, who can create a flame in a bush, is as personal to know his name. But then the moment when he says, here I am, and he begins to inch closer, he goes, mind the gap. Mind the gap. Now, folks, this is a really important statement because we live in times, and it's true of human beings of all time, but when it gets bred into a culture where there is no respect for authority, where now your authoritative voice is if you can set up a social media account, you have an authoritative voice. 
And there's a clear recognition that authority falls short and fails over and over again. There are leaders exposing themselves horrifically all over the place. But there is an authority above all authorities that doesn't fail. There's a truth about God that is a truth about God. He's God. And there must be reverence. When we live in a culture where reverence is going away at every level, for that matter, it isn't just reverence, it's respect for anything and anyone. There is a statement of when you show up in this room and you're like, if there's a God, I want to encounter him, that he's saying to you, I want to be encountered, I'll come to you, but you better mind the gap. Because here, what's the word? I'm holy. Put these two things together. He reveals himself in fire and he tells you he's holy. God is holy fire. Mind the gap. What God is cultivating in Moses in his preparation is fear of God. Now, we live in a time where we don't want to hear that language, fear of God. Like, I want to hear God, like, isn't God nice? And isn't God a father? Yes, he is. But he's God. He's God the Father. He's strong and powerful. He's cultivating fear in Moses because great leaders are not just smart. The way you think of smart, they're wise. And the Bible's not unclear that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God is calling Moses by encountering him, cultivating in him an encounter with the real God developing fear because he's making Moses wise. In fear is the beginning of wisdom. Now, verse 6, God says this. He's just established, I am powerful, and Moses knows it. In mean, the moment at this time, take off your sandals. Do you think Moses obeyed that? I'm pretty sure now his sandals are off, right? He's just said, here I am. And now God doesn't just reveal his power, but he reveals how personal he is. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he's saying, I'm the God of real history. I don't just live ethereally out there in the clouds and have nothing to do with the here and now. I'm the God of your line. You who's struggling with your identity. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God who created the Israelites. I'm the God of your mother and her descendants. I'm the God of real history and of your line. He gets personal. This is very important as we try to understand God. God is not just power. He's power and he's personal. He's personal and he's powerful. He displays his personal nature in that he comes and speaks because he wants to personally engage Moses. But then he says, Moses, mind the gap. I'm not just power. I'm the power of powers. I'm all-powerful. The word is, if you're learning this or need to have it reinforced, omnipotent, all-powerful. And he is holy. He's just established that. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, let me just say this again, because this is um, quite important. We live in this time where it's like, God's a God who wants to cultivate fear, then I want nothing to do with him. 
then you want nothing to do with God. And there's only one God. And you radically underestimate the power and benefit to yourself and the reality of a God if you think it's wrong of him to cultivate fear in his children. He's God. Right now, Moses wants something to happen in himself. He killed an Egyptian because he saw injustice. He wants righteousness. But he's meandering around as a shepherd knowing, and you're going to see this in a minute, knowing he's powerless to do anything about it. If you want things to change and you presume you're going to be able to do it, or the people around you are going to be able to do it. Your desire for change is a desire for God. Your desire for change is a desire for power. And there is power, and it's God, but you better mind the gap and recognize it. I better mind the gap and recognize it. We have to mind the gap and realize God is God. And this, Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of of wisdom. Now the Lord says to him, Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to do good to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to a place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. So now, for all of you that are out there, this is just very important for us to understand the biblical God. For all of you that are out there like, yes, we're talking about the power and the holiness of God. God's also saying, I'm inviting you into goodness. For all of you that are out there that just want to engage with the goodness of God without his power, He's powerless to bring about goodness unless he has power, but he's both. And it's not like and, it's just who God is. It reminds me of the Chronicles of Narnia. There's this very uh, famous phrase, and you may not be familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, but there's this very famous moment where Susan is with Mr. Beaver, and they're talking about Aslan. And Susan thinks Aslan is a man. And she says, well, he's a lion? Mr. Beaver's like, he's a lion, like powerful and strong. And she goes, well, Mr. Beaver, is, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver goes, safe? Safe? No, he's not safe. But he's good. But he's good. Folks, is it good to get on the train at the London Underground and be taken somewhere? Because Moses is about to get on the train of God and be taken somewhere. But the voice is like, mind the gap. Do you want to get on the train of God and be taken somewhere? Like substantively taken somewhere, we have to mind the gap of a God who's powerful and personal and good. And he's saying, my desire for them is good. But I've heard the cry of the people. Here's something else with God. God doesn't operate in revealing himself to us just so that you can have a horizontal relationship with you and God. The minute you encounter God, God is always connecting you to real people. Most of the time, I would argue virtually all of the time, he's revealing himself to us 
through the real stuff of real life. There is a supernatural God who reveals himself in very ordinary and mundane ways, very natural ways. But here, God's encountering Moses to call Moses radically out. Nowhere in the Bible do you see someone radically encounter God without God sending them radically out, turning their eyes out to love of neighbor. You can't disconnect love of God and love of neighbor. That's the great commandment. Love God with all your everything and love your neighbor as yourself. And God is saying to Moses, I'm encountering you. I've heard the cries of my people. And now he goes on to tell Moses, I'm calling you to do something about it. Verse 10, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Egypt, out of Israel. Now, this is the moment where you got to go, okay, what is Moses feeling at this moment? I'm going to call you to lead my people out of Egypt. (laughs) You're going to Pharaoh. And not the Pharaoh he knew, because that Pharaoh died, it just said before. During those many days of Egypt, the king of Egypt died. So now it's like, okay, this isn't even the same one. You're calling me to go to Pharaoh. Like, I've just seen you and your holiness, you and your glory. I'm trying to make sense of that. And now you're saying you're calling me to do this? And now there begins to be this big contrast in the text between Moses saying, verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I? And then God reveals himself all throughout these chapters. We can't read every verse, so go back and look at this. Here's the contrast. Who am I? And God goes, I am. Yeah, but who am I? I am. Yeah, but God, I can't talk well. I am. Yeah, God, but they aren't going to receive me. I am. Yeah, but Lord, they're going to think I'm a fool. I am. But you don't understand. I'm not I am. Follow. This is the contrast all the time. And here's what God is saying at this moment, all the way to the point where God begins to go, here's what I'm going to reveal. And he begins to give pictures of the miracles he's about to show to Egypt. He's showing to Moses. And there's a progression. If you follow chapter 3 and 4, he reveals these miracles to Moses and things like, Moses, take your rod, drop it on the ground. It becomes a snake. He's like, pick up the snake by the tail. Right? Folks, just humanize this for a moment. There's a bush burning, a rod dropping, it becomes a snake, and now he's like, pick up the snake. I got to assume Moses is like, I am not picking up that snake. Pick it up by the tail. He picks it up, it turns back into a rod. Put your hand in your garment. Puts his hand in his garment, pulls it out, it's like a leprous hand. Put it back in, puts it back in, it's healed. He's revealing to Moses, there's this idea in an orchestra called an overture, and in an overture of the orchestra, I know nothing about music, but I learned this. Um, An overture basically gives you tastes of what's to come. And he's showing to Moses what's to come. And then he says, go take it and show it to the Israelites. And then ultimately leads into this cataclysmic moment with the Egyptians. But he's building Moses' faith. And at the end, God's constantly, he's like, I am not. Who am I? I am not. And God's like, I am. I am. Who am I going to tell them sent me? And he says, I am that I am. I am God, the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It gets all the way to the end and Moses is still freaking out and it says God gets angry. Why does God get angry? Because Moses isn't minding the gap. The point isn't Moses' power. 
Folks, again, we live in a culture that everybody's trying to reveal how smart they are, how wise they are, how powerful they are. Let me tell you how to develop a social media platform to have power. Leaders who stand up at churches and spew many times truth, but it's all about their power. And they're convinced of how smart they are and how experienced they are and how much expertise they have. And God's like, will you mind the gap of where real power lies? Because the real power is not in the fact that you are anything. I have to pause here and just say this for a moment. (laughs) The number of like, I do social media a little bit, but the number of like the current in our culture of like, I'm fierce. Like you'll see like all these people like writing these things like I've recognized the power within and I'm fierce. No, you're not. You're in fact writing that down trying to convince yourself of something because you know that's not true. The advantage at least Mo- Moses has at this moment is he knows he's powerless. And he's like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. But where God says, mind the gap, is he's saying, Moses, you don't understand power. There's a gap between the way the world and you viewed power and the way God does. God knows he is power. The kingdom of God, Paul says, doesn't exist in talk. It exists in power. The Apostle Paul understands this. And he very much is similar in 2 Corinthians 12 to Moses. So Moses has now seen all of these miracles in this battle of him saying, but I'm not, but I'm not. And God saying, but I am, but I am. Paul saw a vision, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and he's taken into these amazing places and he's had amazing revelations of God. And then he says, God gives him a thorn in the flesh and it's awful, so awful that Paul's like, I'm pleading with God and I'm pleading with God and I'm pleading with God, take it away. But God says to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power, highlight that word, power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says this, therefore, I'll accept, I'll embrace my weaknesses. That's not what he says. He says, therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses. Why? Because he wants power. So that, that's a contingent statement, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. The power of God and the power of Christ comes to the weak. It comes to the dumb. It comes to the inarticulate. Here's the issue. We have to not just accept it, acknowledge it, and embrace it. We have to boast in our weaknesses. This is what John the Baptist said. I must decrease that he might increase. God shines his face on the humble and lowly of spirit who tremble at his word. There's an embracing of the weaknesses that we must mind the gap between what our culture says is power and what God says is power. Our culture says conjure it up in any way in yourself and God says get low, embrace and boast in your weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon us. Now, there's this last moment uh, I want to expose you to at the end of chapter 4 and It's weird. So God actually gets Moses to the point of saying, you're going back to Egypt. And I don't care if you don't talk very well. You have a brother over there, Aaron, and Aaron's going to speak on your behalf at many moments. And so Moses goes back to Jethro, who's his father-in-law. And he's like, listen, I need to take my family. 
God, the God of the universe, has told me to go. And Jethro's like, go in peace, go for it. Then the Lord says in verse 21 of chapter 4, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. And he'd seen these. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. That's a great calling to have, right? Go to Pharaoh, do miracles, and he's going to listen. He's like, he ain't going to listen. That's not a good calling. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel, my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Which is very interesting, side note, that he's doing firstborn sons in Pharaoh, right? The Pharaoh at the time was the one who was killing the firstborn sons of Egypt. I mean, of Israel in Egypt. So now here's where it gets really weird. So God said, go, Moses. So Moses like, goes to his father-in-law, get things in order. God says, you're going to get there. And now Moses finally gets to the place where he's going to stay. He gets to a lodging place along the way. And the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. I mean, guys, honestly, like this is when you're like, the Bible is so weird. Like, what is this? Like, God, you encounter him in a burning bush. You reveal to himself your power and holiness. You tell him to take off his sandals. You tell him he's going to do something. You sit with him compassionately and you're with him and you're with him. He won't believe your power. He doesn't believe your power. He doesn't believe your power. Finally, he's like, uncle, I'll go. You're finally getting him to do what you want to do. And now he just goes to lay his head down and you're going to kill him? Now, you think this is weird. Watch this. He seeks to put him to death. Then Zipporah is his wife, takes a flint and cuts off her son's foreskin and touches Moses' feet with it and says, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And so he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, all right, let's pray, right? Like, What? Like, what in the world? That's like one of the weirdest things you could possibly ever read. Okay, God wants to kill him, and then God relents from killing him because his wife cut off the son's foreskin and touched his foot? Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I can't make sense totally of this. And commentators and scholars have argued what this is they've even gone like well is that really Moses and this is what God's really doing and who's the he and who's the she and I'm like well just read it it's pretty clear who it is right well why is he ultimately doing this there's something in circumcision that's happening here and circumcision was a sign of the covenant remember God is the God who made the covenant with Abraham Isaac and Jacob and covenant is powerful it's this power of like I'm your God, you're my people. But then there's something in blood in this passage, right? You cut off foreskin, that gets bloody. And then she says, you're surely a bridegroom of blood to me, so let it be known. It was then that she said a bridegroom of blood. Okay. I don't know what all of this means. I don't know how much of it's cultural. I don't think it's like code that you're supposed to try to figure something out. I think if you follow the trace of the Bible, this is my gut of what's happening. Moses encounters God. God says, mind the gap of, your whole, of my holiness. And you're a creature and I'm God. Mind it. And then he calls him to something and he's like, you need to mind your powerlessness. 
but Moses is still rejecting, still rejecting. And Moses is acutely aware of the evil, wickedness, and sin in Egypt. And I am convinced that at this moment, God bears down on Moses in the night. Have you ever had a moment when it just feels like you're going to die? And then there's moments like, I think God might kill me. But here it says God is pouring down his anger. This is, I'm now articulate. I think he's pouring down his anger on Moses, fundamentally saying this, Moses, that which you hate in Egypt sits in you. Your ability to identify the wickedness within Pharaoh rests inside your very human heart, and you have not yet fully mined the gap of your own sin. All throughout the Bible, sin in the Old Testament is relented upon. God turns away based upon the shedding of blood. And you go, this is so weird. But sin brings about bloodshed. Sin ruins families. It tortures marriages. It terrifies you at night. It's the horror of our world that if left to our own senses, there could be literal and metaphorical bloodshed. And the metaphor isn't literal blood coming from my arm, but it's me bleeding in anguish with mental health problems, with trauma from my past. Sin decimates the world God made, and God hates sin, and sin rests in the heart of every human being, and God is not going to allow Moses to go without recognizing he is as culpable to the problem as Pharaoh. And so in the end, he uses Moses' son. And the truth of the matter, all throughout the Old Testament, God only turns away from sin but doesn't deal with it. Here, Moses' sin, Moses' son, is used to get God to relent. What ultimately happens? God uses his own son and doesn't just cut off his foreskin, but kills him. Kills him to deal with the anger, his anger against sin, and to ultimately bring about liberation, to ultimately enter us in to a land flowing with milk and honey, which is into himself. God's amazing, folks. He's holy. He's good. He's powerful. He's personal. He calls us to one another. But he'll never do that without us looking right directly into our sin in knowing we don't have the power to deal with it. He must. And praise be to God, Paul said in Romans chapter 5, that while we were yet sinners, while we were weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen? Amen. Father, praise be to you. Thank you for your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.